I said to myself, Look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow, and the more knowledge, the more grief. Well, it's great to be with all of you this Labor Day weekend. And ordinarily, this would be the kind of Sunday where you would typically hear someone talk about taking a break or getting some rest before the busyness of fall comes and hits us. But this morning, I would like to do the opposite. I would like to talk instead about restlessness. Anybody get a little unsettled just hearing that word? Anybody prefer that we talk about rest instead? Well, if we want to really experience rest in our lives and the abundant life that comes with that, we have to address what makes us restless. And if we can identify what that is, then I believe today we'll all be able to make a lot of progress on our journey in our spiritual lives. So as we begin, I'd like for you to take a moment and ask yourself, what makes you restless? What causes you to get a little unsettled? Maybe for a lot of us, it's the start of the school year. And all the pressures that we're about to face academically, relationally, athletically, all the tests, the deadlines, the homework. Maybe you're dissatisfied with your your job right now, and that's causing you to feel a little restless. Or maybe there's some important relationship in your life that just feels off, or maybe it's just the news every single day that just comes in in such discouraging fashion that starts to unsettle and make us restless. Or maybe you don't feel like you have time for the things that really matter the most in life. Or maybe you start to get restless right now because you haven't been feeling restless, and the fact that you're not restless when you normally are is making you restless. That happens to me sometimes. But when restless starts to arise in uh, our hearts, what do we normally do? We normally try and shove it away as quickly as we can by maybe turning on the radio in our car or opening up uh, our our phone to watch uh, or check the latest kind of thing that's trending on social media. We hate that feeling and we will do whatever it takes to get rid of it, even driving while texting or whatever, because we don't want to feel that restless feeling. So where do you think this restlessness comes from. When I think about what makes me kind of squirm and get antsy in my life, restlessness normally stems from my own fears. My own fears of failure, fears of inadequacy, fears of losing what I've got, fears of not becoming enough, fears maybe related to to health or, or children or relationships or finances or security. Fears of maybe feeling or being exposed. I've been having this terrible reoccurring dream over the last several months where I am standing doing what I'm doing right now here at this platform and I am utterly unprepared. And everybody is just looking at me and I try and find some words to say and my mind just keeps going blank. 
I can't think of anything. Then I just wake up from the dream. My heart is racing. My back is all sweaty. I breathe a sigh of relief, thanking God that that was only a dream. And there's still weeks and times to, to prepare. But then it makes me wonder, what fear is lying underneath all of this that's keeping me up at night and making me restless? What fears do you have that keep you awake at night? Well, all this month, we have been studying what is arguably the most restless book in the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes. We've been introduced in this book to a teacher who's gone on a quest to discover how life can be most fulfilling and meaningful. This is a person who has acquired anything and everything that any of us could ever hope to have, and yet it still leaves him wanting more. You can easily imagine him staying up at night wondering if he, what he should do next, if he should do anything at all. And underneath all this restlessness probably lies a major fear that he has, and probably all of us have. It's the fear of meaninglessness. Is this life really all there is. Is there a greater fear than that one? Well, throughout the series, we have been listening to quite a few different songs by contemporary artists and a lot of classic rock artists about uh, their own Ecclesiastes-like struggles and journeys in life. And so today, I want to share one song with you. If you were here in Lexington, you just heard it, but it's a song written by Justin Timberlake, uh, written a couple of years ago, called Drink You Away. I first saw it pop up on YouTube after Timberlake performed it with Chris Stapleton at the Country Music Awards. Aren't you glad we don't make you sing this close to people and each other's faces at church? Now, normally, I like country music about as much as Pastor Brian likes Boston sports teams. But this was an exception. Because while the song is about drinking away the fears that we and the anxiety that we have after a breakup in life, I think it actually gets to something far deeper. Here are some of the lyrics. Bittersweet thing, could this be a dream or just the same nightmare that keeps me awake? Feel it in my brain, tall shot of pain, pour a little out now for the love that we've made. I feel it in the morning. You're still here in the morning. I see you, but you're gone. Telephone the doctor. I'm not okay. The bottom of the bottle to fill this empty heart up. A thousand proof don't change the truth. I dive in, but I can't drink you away. I've tried Jack. I've tried Jim. And I've tried all of their friends, but I can't drink you away. All of these rocks, I can't swim out of this skin that I'm living in. So despite all the Jack and Jim and I'm told other hard liquors that he might have tried, he can't drink away the pain of this breakup. Probably the most evocative lyrics in this song were these ones, that he's living in a skin that he doesn't want to be in. Ever felt that way before? To read into this a little bit more, I wonder if what made this particular breakup so painful for Timberlake or whoever he is writing about was because of how much weight was placed on this relationship to bring satisfaction and meaning in life. I imagine before this relationship got underway that this person probably felt pretty restless and they were maybe hoping that if they just found that right person, that right relationship, that somehow that void in their lives would go away. And perhaps it did momentarily, but once this breakup came, the void not only returned, but it widened and deepened and left this person feeling emptier than ever. 
And in so many ways, just how Timberlake has tried to drink away his pain, the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes has tried to get it away, get rid of that feeling in many different ways. He could try and achieve it away or work it away. Maybe his song would be like this. I can't please you away through physical pleasure or I can't power you away by taking high positions. I can't accomplish you away. The reality is none of us can drink away, work away, watch away, or social media away our deepest fears. They always have a way of tracking us down. Now, as school kicks back up, it's important for us to remember that we can't learn or study this restlessness away either. As we saw in the earlier video, the teacher uh, tries to free himself through learning and studying, and what he only finds is a terrible meaninglessness to it all. Here's how he uh, concludes. This is Ecclesiastes 1. He said, I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ever ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Now, while Education can undoubtedly open some great doors for us, and knowledge can be a great force for good in the world. It alone cannot satisfy our deepest angst and longings and fears. You can't bachelor's degree that away. You can't master it. You can't even PhD away your pain. Now, let me just speak to the students here for a moment, because if you're like me, you would probably try to do whatever you could to not go back to school this fall. Anybody there? So this verse can be great ammo for you to use in an argument with your parents. Let's think of it this way. If school leads to learning and knowledge and knowledge leads to sorrow and grief, then you can tell your parents, if you really love me, you won't want me to go back to school because school will only lead to sorrow and grief. You don't want me to experience that, right? If they ask you where you heard that article you could, or that, that argument, you can tell them church and tell them Pastor Tim Galley is the one who said it, all right? <laughs> So if none of these things seem to work, things even as good as learning and knowledge, to whom or what do we ultimately turn? Today, let's flip to the last chapter of Ecclesiastes to finish up our series and to discover if meaningless is really all that there is or if there's another way forward. And if so, how might we discover it? Let's look to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, kind of smack dab almost in the middle of your Bible. We'll read verses 1 through 7 to begin. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return with the rain and the day when the guards of the house tremble and the strong men are bent And the women who grind cease working because they are few. And those who look through the window see dimly when the doors on the streets are shut and the sound of the grinding is low. And one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. When one is afraid of heights and terrors are in the road, the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because all must go to their eternal home. 
And the mourners will go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped. And the golden bow is, bowl is broken and the pitcher is broken at the fountain. And the wheel is broken at the cistern. And the dust returns to the earth as it was. And the breath returns to the God who gave it. Now these verses wrap up the teacher of Ecclesiastes' thoughts on living life under the sun, which is a metaphor for living apart from God. Ultimately, what we can expect out of life, he says, is it's going to start off pretty well. We'll be youthful. We'll have a lot of health and vitality and energy. But slowly but surely, it's going to start to deteriorate all through the aging process. And all we will have left to look forward to is death, as if death is something we should be looking forward to. He likens it to an impending storm or a building that's about to fall apart or something that was once held to be precious but now is worthless because it is nearing death. It's a grim, ominous, meaningless conclusion to the reality of how this teacher sees life. But after verse 7 here in chapter 12, a major shift occurs. We hear the voice from a different speaker someone who is referred to as the framing narrator of Ecclesiastes. We met him way back in chapter one. He sets up, these are the words of the teacher, and now he's going to bring a conclusion to the end of Ecclesiastes. So he starts in verse eight by summarizing the big idea of this teacher's sermon, if you will. He says, vanity of vanities, says the teacher. All is vanity. That's how we could sum up the teacher's view of life. And if Life is nothing but just a, a, a wisp of smoke or fog like we've seen. Then we might as well eat, drink, and be merry because that's all there is to do. But that is far from the conclusion that this framing narrator makes about life. He speaks and wants to instruct someone who is referred to as his son. And I think that's really meant to imply every person who ever hears the words of this book. Let's see what he says here in verses 9 through 13. Besides being wise, the teacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs. The teacher sought to find pleasing words, and he wrote words of truth plainly. The sayings of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings that are given by one shepherd. Of anything beyond these, my child, beware. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is, a wearis is wearisome of the flesh." The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for that is the whole duty of everyone. See, the reason why the book of Ecclesiastes was written was to warn us against placing our hope in anything or anyone other than God. The people are the things that we place our hope in besides God or what we call idols idols, and just about all of us have them. Idols are good things that we allow to become ultimate things. We heard about some of these throughout our series. Pleasure. Pleasure is a good thing, a gift from God built into the fabric of creation. But when it becomes an ultimate thing that drives our lives, it can have devastating consequences and only leave us wanting more. Power is a good thing that God has given us to affect positive change in the world. But when it becomes an ultimate thing, countless people's lives can be negatively impacted when the wrong people have power. 
Achievement is a really good thing when it's directed toward the end of accomplishing God's purposes. But when it becomes an ultimate thing, the price we pay for our achievements will always outweigh the benefits that accompany them. Knowledge is a really good thing that can promote great human flourishing. But when it becomes an ultimate thing, it can lead to fatal pride, what writers call hubris, And it can lead instead to great sorrow and grief. The book of Ecclesiastes, as one commentator puts it, is an idol buster. It's an idol buster. It wants to prevent us from allowing good things to take the ultimate place in our lives. And the way that we can break our idols is by learning to fear God, he tells us. To fear God. Well, what does it mean to fear God? Given the context of this passage, I think we can surmise that Fearing God has to do with making sure we have the right relationship with God. That should involve respect and honor and a desire for God, worship of God, being in awe and reverence of Him. And when we do this, the writer of Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of real wisdom. And wisdom is all about learning to live rightly. And that can be learned best as we fear God. Here's how I personally like to describe the fear of the Lord, what it means. To fear God means keeping God in his proper place. Fearing God means keeping God in the proper place in our lives. So how do we do that? Well, how many of you enjoy living in a neat and orderly home? Anybody like that kind of space? Everything kind of has a spot where it belongs. How many of you think a messy house is an orderly house? That's the proper place for things lying around. A few people. I see a lot of spouses looking at each other right here. I tend to lean toward the, the messy side of things a little bit. I will confess I love books, and I have books laying around everywhere. And if I have them out, then I will be more likely to read them. But if somebody puts them away and back on the shelf, I don't see them, and I don't read them, and then I get dumb and whatever. I do stupid things. So I like to have books lying around. Now, believe it or not, I have a book that talks about keeping things in their proper place. And so I was trying to find that book as I was working on this section in the sermon earlier in the week. And I looked for about 25, 30 minutes and I couldn't find that book anywhere. And I still can't find that book anywhere. It would have been really helpful. And like any good thing in life, if we don't keep it in its proper place, it can't benefit us. God can't benefit us and bless us and help us live fully if he's not in the proper place in our lives as well. So there was going to be this killer quote from this book that I was going to share with you, but since I can't find the book, I'm going to have to settle for trying to draw a picture, a few pictures, to explain how we can keep God in his proper place. So when God might not be in his proper place, he can be apart from us, apart from us. This is our life right here, and then outside of it, we have God. We want to be away from God. This is life under the sun, as the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us. And life under the sun is ultimately a meaningless life. It is a meaningless life. So we can first live apart from God and just do our own thing. Or secondly, God can be a part 
of our lives. Don't you love my handwriting? That is just beautiful. He can be a part of our lives, very much like we might have a uh, kind of like a division of our life like this. We might have like our work life, our friends, maybe family, home, maybe chores, hobbies, church or God, and then whatever else we, we like to do. Now, this seems to work for a lot of us much of the time, but this way of life is a very vulnerable life. If God is only a part of our lives, they become very vulnerable. Here's what I mean. Let's say that your work life suddenly falls apart. It crumbles and you did not expect it. Or maybe a friendship suddenly dissolves. What do you have left in your life now? You have an incomplete life. Your life isn't the full, whole, integral life that God desires for us and that we all long for. In fact, if a part of your life is kind of taken away, you kind of look like Pac-Man. That's what your life is kind of like. And in fact, you will just be chomping along at anything you can possibly get your hands or your mouth on to try and fill up this missing piece, this void in your life. But there's a third way. And we would say, when God becomes your whole life. Imagine this is your life and God is at the very center of it. And all the other aspects of your life, they flow out of your relationship with God, your work life, your family, friends, recreation, other hobbies, whatever else, church, all these things, they come from it. Now, here's what happens. Just if God is the center of your life, it doesn't mean your life is going to be all perfect and everything's going to go the way you want it to. It's all going to work out. No. Things at work might fall apart. Things at school might be really hard and difficult. Uh, some, you might, some relational struggles might emerge. You might have a health crisis. But even though those little pieces start to affect our lives, the whole being of who we are remains intact and we can be confident that we have enough because God is a, is a God who never changes and his love for us never, ever fails. Do you believe that? So when God is at the proper place in our lives, our whole lives revolve around him. Now here's what I hope you understand today more than anything else. This is what I believe it means to fear God. And when we fear God, here's what happens. The more we fear God, the less we have to fear. The more we fear God, the less we have to fear. Now, it sounds kind of contradictory at first. How by fearing can I be less afraid? Well, I think this is one of the many paradoxes that we find in the Bible. Paradoxes like if you want to gain your life, you have to lose it. If you want to live, you first have to die. If you want to be the greatest, you have to be the least. To kind of focus in on this paradox of fearing God so that we can be less afraid. I titled this sermon, Fearful and Unafraid. Because when we fear God by keeping him in his proper place, we don't have to allow what causes us to be afraid to run our lives or drive them any longer. Let me try and explain that a bit. One of the biggest fears I think that many of us have, myself included, is the fear of not having enough or not being enough. Have you ever feared that you weren't enough as a person or spouse or friend or son or daughter or worker? Maybe somebody in your life has made you feel like you were not enough. Well, that fear of inadequacy that might come from feeling too old or too young 
or to whatever, it can create this gnawing restlessness within each of us. But the more we fear God, the less we have to be afraid of not being enough. Now, this truth was really beautifully reminded to me earlier this summer. Uh, Several of us at Grace Chapel helped put together an event with local pastors and uh, marketplace leaders in uh, the city of Boston. And we brought in uh, a person I knew from back in Pittsburgh where I grew up. Her name is Lisa Slayton, and she runs the Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation. And she came to talk about how we can help our city of Boston flourish and thrive by doing just work, just work. And she began her talk by saying this statement that I will never forget. She said, Boston already has everything it needs to be transformed. Boston already has everything it needs. It has the churches, it has the leadership, it has all the resources it needs for this city to reflect the very redemption of God. She said, the greatest enemy that we face to completing this work is believing that we don't have enough. And then Lisa spoke about a great temptation that many of us face. She said, we are constantly faced with the challenge of choosing to live from either a scarcity mentality or an abundance mentality. A scarcity mentality says that you don't have enough, you are not enough, and you will never be or have enough. But an abundance mentality is not mere wishful thinking. It is a way of living by faith and trust in God that in him you have more than you could ever need. When you live with an abundance mindset, you can see obstacles as opportunities. You can experience times as trials, as chances to trust more and more in God, even when you don't get the outcome you were looking for. But when you live from a scarcity standpoint instead, you will always live by fear. And when fear drives our lives, sin is nearly always the result. Let me say that again. When fear drives, motivates our lives, we live from our fears, sin is nearly always going to be the result. If you find yourself doing something you wish you were not doing or having an attitude you wish you didn't have, perhaps you need to think about what fears are motivating how you live right now. But when you live from an abundance mindset, on the other hand, you can live by faith as expressed in love. That's what you were made for. So I want you to ask yourself right now, are you living more from a scarcity mindset or an abundance mindset? When you woke up today, did you feel like you didn't have enough or weren't enough or did you feel like your life could be overflowing? That will really help you understand if God's in the right place in your life or not. Well, when I asked myself that question that summer, uh, June night, I realized that when I am at my worst as a leader or pastor or friend or husband or father, it's when I am living from a scarcity mentality. I allow the enemy to overcome my thinking, causing me to believe that since I don't look a certain way or I haven't made all the strategic choices in life, that somehow I am inferior to the task that God has called me to do and called me to be. 
But when I remember that by God's grace, because of his great love for me, even though all of those things might very well be true of me, I have still more than I could ever ask or imagine for who God's called me to be and what he has called me to do. It's not of me, it is of him, and it's available to each and every one of us. Thus, I have to make the daily choice to keep God in his proper place by taking this abundance perspective And I can do that as I keep God at the very center of my life. And when I do that, all of my fears of insecurity and doubt and worry and restlessness, they slowly start to fade away. See, the more we fear God, the less we have to fear. Because when God is in his proper place, we can live as cups running over, brimming with blessing to be great light to our world. Well, here's the church community at Grace. We want to help you make sure God stays in the proper place in your life. And so we want to share about five things here that we hope everybody who calls Grace Chapel their home church that you would participate in. Consider these guardrails that will not only help keep your life on track, but they will be things that allow God to remain the center of your life as well. First one is worship weekly. Worship weekly. Worship is the most indispensable practice we have for keeping God in the proper place in our lives. When we drift away from weekly worship, we risk allowing good things to become ultimate things. We can allow things that are good in their proper place like recreation or youth sports to become idols in our lives. So here's my challenge. If you're somebody like me, if you don't write something down, it probably doesn't get done. So maybe right now you just need to take out your calendar and put weekly worship right there on your, on your iPhone and make it a reoccurring event for every single Sunday as best as you can. Secondly, belong to a group. Without the encouragement and accountability of other people, we will almost certainly drift into a scarcity mentality where we will live by fear and not by faith. We need each other. And so over the next few weeks, you'll be hearing about ways that you can jump in a group. Talk to your campus pastor. Uh, If you're here in Lexington, go out to the community corner and find out how you can get in the life community or join one of the Alpha Roots groups or Go groups. They'll be kicking off here in the next few weeks. Thirdly, serve on a team. Serve on a team. One of the ways that God has created us is he has called all of us to be ministers. Not just people who have titles like pastor or missionary, but all of us. And if we, have, if we are called to be ministers, then we have a ministry. And God wants us to be used by him to bless people within and without the church. So here at Grace, we hope that you will take your place to be involved in building up the body of Christ. We need you, and we have a lot of great teams that you can be involved with to serve. Send me an email or talk with somebody uh, here, and we would love to help you get plugged in. Fourthly, we hope all of us give. Now, the reason we talk about giving so much around here at Grace is because Jesus has said, and we believe him, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. I'm sure a lot of us could testify to that. But I believe that the reason that Jesus says this is that giving frees us from this scarcity mentality. Giving allows us to put into practice that we actually believe in God. We have more than enough. Giving ensures that we don't allow anything of this world, including money, to become an ultimate thing, having power over us. Giving keeps God in his proper place. And lastly, we want all of us to go, to go. 
God has given you a calling and mission on, in your life to serve and bless others. We call that around here at Grace your go. And we want you to discover what that is and then get going. Next week is Vision Sunday here and Pastor Brian will be given a great vision about what this go culture might look like here at Grace. So we hope you come back to that and then get going every day of your life. These things help keep God in his proper place. And keeping God in his proper place is what it means to fear him. Now the writer of Ecclesiastes pairs something else with this fear of God as the ultimate aim of our lives. He says in verse 13, to fear God and to keep his commandments. And here's my contention today. We can also fear God by keeping his commandments. Now, have you ever set out to make an honest attempt to try and do everything that God said? It's pretty daunting. I bet you didn't succeed. In college, I really made a painstaking effort to do this. I made a, whole, I made a two-column sheet of paper that I looked at often. And on one side of the column was, it says, things to do. And I wrote down all these different commands in Scripture that I am called to do that I frequently don't feel like I do enough. And then on the other side, I made this column that said, don't do. And I wrote down all the things that I do that I know I shouldn't be doing. And so I would then try and say, all right, I'm going to check this list almost every day and see how many do's that I did and how many don't do's that uh, I did do. That kind of gets confusing sounding, but here was my result. I always did more of the things that I didn't want to do than the things I did want to do. And this started to get really frustrating to me. I felt defeated. I felt guilty all the time. I started to resent all the people that seemed like they were doing more of what I wanted to do and did less of what I found myself doing. And so eventually I just stopped that method. It was frustrating me. It felt like I was failing God. Fast forward about five years. I still hadn't come up with a better plan to try and do everything that God said because God actually wants us to do everything he said and he empowers us to take some big steps forward in doing that. Well, five years later, I was, uh, uh, or so, I was in my last year of seminary in Colorado and I got to take a class in Colorado Springs uh, taught by a professor from the University of Southern California named Dallas Willard. Uh, he's a big hero of ours, and we named our son after him. And, and Dallas said words that probably were the biggest aha moment I ever had since becoming a follower of Christ. And he said this, if you want to do all that God said, don't try to do everything he said, but become the kind of person who would easily and routinely do what God wants us to do. Don't try to do it like I was doing with my list, but become the kind of person who would easily and routinely do all that God said. And here's what he means. When you try to do all that God says, you're merely exerting your willpower to try and force your way into obedience. It would be kind of like trying to run uh, a long triathlon without having trained at all. You might get kind of far, but you're probably not going to finish. That's what my relationship with God kind of felt like when I was using that list. But instead of trying, we should instead train ourselves or arrange our whole lives, our rhythms, our habits, our thinking, our feeling, our relationships, how we use our bodies so that we would become the kind of people who naturally, easily, routinely make it a habit of doing what God said, that it would just overflow from ourselves. It was the most freeing approach. And as I started to try and arrange my life that way, I can say I have made more progress in my life with God and in my character formation than I ever had before. 
I have a long way to go, as most of you know, but I've made some good progress by the grace of God. So as you think about the habits of your life, I'd love for you to think, which ones are helping you to do all that God wants you to do, and which ones are preventing you from obeying him? One of the biggest ones for me, and I think for all of us, has to do with our pace of life. If we try and do too much, at least for me, I feel really overstretched. And when I start feeling overstretched, I feel inadequate. And when I start feeling inadequate, I start to live from this scarcity mentality, like I don't have enough. And when I don't feel like I have enough, that starts to make me restless. And when I start to feel restless, I don't start acting with much patience or kindness. People seem to be getting in my way all the time instead of me approaching them as sons and daughters of God who I need to love. That's what I'm made for. Becoming the kind of person who easily and routinely does all that God says is one who structures their life in such a way that God would be the very center. If you're a Lexington person, over this next year, I'm going to do a handful of teachings after our 11 o'clock service uh, using video instruction from Dallas, who passed away a few years ago. And that's, I'm talking about Dallas Willard's teachings, not my son Dallas. He'll teach you a lot about restlessness and impatience and all those sorts of things. But uh, we'll look at a little bit more closely at Dallas Willard's uh, thoughts. So we'd love to, we'll tell you more about that and we'd love to have you. Well, it'd be nice just to quit on that note, but we just got one little verse left to contend with here for another moment. Here's verse 14, the last verse in Ecclesiastes. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now the narrator wants us to be ready for what awaits every single person standing before God one day. If that doesn't make you a little bit restless, I don't know what will. But while the teacher of Ecclesiastes was thought as a wise and knowledgeable person, he was not the most wise or the most knowledgeable. But the book of Ecclesiastes tries to point us to the person who was the wisest, who was the greatest person ever. And that's Jesus. He is the true fulfillment of wisdom. He is the greatest provider of the most meaningful life that any of us could live. He gave us his commands and told us to obey them because obedience to Christ is what lead to the, leads to the most abundant life. And in fact, Christ fulfilled every part of the commands that we ourselves were powerless to do so that in him we could have life and life to the fullest. None of us can do this, but Christ, through his sacrificial death on the cross and resurrection from the grave, he has made that way. He has conquered the greatest enemy of all, and that's death, so that none of us would ever need to live with fear any longer. And in fact, when we make the choice to follow him, he promises that we can stand boldly before the throne of the Father because Christ's perfect life counts as our very own. We are wrapped in his righteousness. So when God looks at us, he doesn't look at all of our sins. He doesn't look at all of our failures. He doesn't look at all of the ways we've been driven by fear. Instead, he sees his beautiful son, his life, which counts as our very own. And that's why we fear God by putting him in the proper, lie, our proper place in our lives, making him our leader, our Lord, our Savior, because that is what enables us to live unafraid. So thus, the ultimate decision stands for all of us here today. Will you choose to live life under the sun, apart from God? Or instead, Will you live life with the Son of God, the greatest teacher of all, Jesus, and make him the very center of your life? Let's pray. 
God, we thank you for this book of Ecclesiastes that you've given us, and it's been a joy to study through it together as a church. Thank you for this great conclusion that it offers, that we can find a meaningful life when we turn to you and look to you. Perhaps you're here today, and you would say that God is not in the proper place in your life. I'd love to give you a moment right now just to pray to God and ask him, to make his way to the center of your heart and your whole being. Maybe God's only been a part of your life and you want him to be the whole thing, to say, God, forgive me from only being one portion of my life and not being the whole thing. Be the center, Jesus. Be my rock, be my cornerstone. Help me live from you. God, I pray for all of us here today It's so easy for us to fall into that temptation of living from a scarcity mentality. Forgive us for how we so easily drift into that. I pray that you would give us people, that you would help us as a whole church family to encourage one another, to be reminded of the faith that we can have in you, that in you we have more than enough. Our lives are abundant. And again, that is the reason why you came, Jesus, that we might live life and live it abundantly. So may we live that abundant life through your spirit and may that abundant life overflow into all the people who we interact with each and every day for your great glory, God, and for the good of this world. We pray this all in Jesus' great name and everyone pray together. Amen. Amen.